From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack Williams away today. Tom Price, very glad to be joined by Father Brian Mullady. How are you, Padre? Just fine, thank you. Greetings from Virginia. Yes, you're at uh, Christendom College uh, this week, right? I am, yes. Teaching religious, yes. Uh Well, very good. I want to give out the phone numbers because we always uh, are quite busy on Thursdays. Here is our phone number if you have a question for Father Brian Mullady. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205 271 Two nine eight five. You can also shoot us an email if you prefer that. Openline at EWTN.com is the address. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Father Brian in the subject line or uh, Thursday in the subject line. Either one of those will work great. Uh, before we go to the phones, Father, let's, uh, let's talk about this new text you were telling us about from the uh, Pontifical Academy for Life. It's got a great uh, headline here, Theological Ethics of Life, Scripture, Tradition, and Practical Challenges. Yes, and the National Catholic Register's headline about it is Back to the 60s, Pontifical Academy of Her Life Pushes for Departure from Doctrine on Contraceptive Sex. Uh, this document uh, came out just recently, and it's really more of a summary, it says, of a seminar of about 20 people. And some people in the Pacific Pontifical Academy of Life didn't even know it was happening, and they weren't consulted. And they're astonished that the document makes the suggestion that we really could allow contraception. So, in other words, that's 50 years of water gone under the bridge Mm. that they're basically trying to reverse. Now, the problem is, and which is why I wanted to talk about this, this is part of a larger difficulty. And the Pontifical Academy of Life, of course, enjoys no authority unless it's connected to the Holy See. Mm-hmm. They like the Pope to issue an encyclical supporting their teaching. The whole difficulty we have in moral theology, and this has been reflected in the last two or three years, was an attempt to reverse the teaching of splendor of truth. And especially the three moral determinants, and especially there's such a thing as an objective morals or an objective ethics to which there is no exception. This is based on a theory that was very prevalent in the 60s and, of course, has its origin in a German theologian. Mm. Oh, boy. (laughs) Which is that there's two systems of ethics. One is what this theologian called the material essentialist ethics, which are the laws considered in theory as universals. But this law can never be applied without um, compromise to every single situation. 
So there's a second system of ethics. It's called the formal existential ethics. And in this system, the person who's perhaps read the universal teaching, let's say they've read Humani Vitae, or they uh, read about murder or adultery uh-huh. or divorce, you can down the list, yeah. um, considers this an attainable ideal. So what they do is, with the Holy Spirit's help, they consult and discern whether in their situation they might not, under certain conditions, be able to break or deny or act against the teaching and still conform to what the church teaches. And this, of course, allows exceptions that are basically based on personal interpretation and a personal confrontation with God. Some cardinals recently have suggested that this is the same as following your conscience and that if you're following your conscience, no matter what it tells you, the priest has to help you do it, especially in confession. Now, let's apply this to contraception. Let's say we think generally it shouldn't be practiced. However, in our particular situation, the Holy Spirit will help us, us to discern in our conscience that it's not a sin for us. It's a good thing, actually. So we just discern that for us, we don't need to confess in confession. We can certainly go to Holy Communion. And by contraception, I don't mean a brother-sister relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean yeah. actually using artificial devices. Uh-huh. Well, the priest has to help you do that. Now, the problem is, suppose that your conscience helps you to discern that you need to fly a plane into the World Trade Center. Was well, the priest supposed to help you buy the plane and help you train the pilots <laughs> and uh, the whole thing? They forgot the word correct in that statement. Correct consciences, mm-hmm. mind, not erroneous consciences. Right, right. And so they need to form their conscience correctly, and that means according to the teaching of the church. And it's very clear from certain teachings that there, in the church's mind, are no exceptions. Doesn't matter how many experts I think we may should have have some exceptions. It doesn't matter how many discussion groups we have or how many seminars we have with supposed experts. And apparently in this particular seminar, the suggestion is made that even non-Catholics were consulted in it. It just isn't true. Mm. And if once you open the dike in this particular problem, mm-hmm. as Paul VI rightly saw and the other popes after him have too, there is nothing that's considered always morally evil. And as a result, there's no such thing as always a mortal sin, and no such things as things you always have to confess. Uh, basically, you confess without being true to your conscience, whatever that means. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting that at this particular time, and apparently the cardinal who was the head of this Pontifical Academy of Life purposely issued this statement on the 25th anniversary of the Gospel of Life, that wasn't an act. Mm, no, no. And so uh, it's very strange, the whole thing. So the only reason I want to point this out is because some Catholics may have read about it, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, they may receive some information from sort of uh, media sources that now we've changed our teaching about this, which we haven't. Right. And we can't. And uh, Paul VI was clear about that. 
and everybody in authority since then in the Holy See has been clear about that. Wow. Well, there it is. And if you want uh, additional information, that is uh, currently in the register, right, Father? Yes. Okay. Very good. Yeah. If you put in uh, PAL or Pontifical Academy of Life, I'm, I'm sure you'll you'll be able to pull that. Yes. Yeah, you can access it online. It's quite. Uh, I'm I'm looking at it right at the moment. Very so. good. All right. Well, thank you for that. And it's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Phone lines are open for you right now here on Open Line at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian, 833-288-3986. So here is an email we received, Father, from Paul. Paul says, in regards to sin and death, how or why did animals and plants die before humans ever existed? Oh, well, uh, because that's the animal nature of the animal kingdom. Uh, one basically lives off the other, mm-hmm. and they don't commit sins. So the whole teaching of Genesis has really nothing to do with how animals relate to animals or plants, for that matter. Because, you know, some of them eat plants. They're living things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has to do with how man relates to is the material world. And since we weren't um, in the state of sin, we were in the state of grace, we were at peace with the material world. The material world wasn't existing, being exploited by, resisting, being exploited by us. And uh, this peace is represented in the whole idea of the Garden of Eden. Uh, Human beings, when they committed the sin, then it became manipulative, and they tried to dominate the earth. I know it says subdue and dominate the earth, mm-hmm. but I mean in a materialistic sense of merely using the earth for selfish purposes. And, of course, the earth uh, doesn't like that, <laughs> I yeah, mean, at yeah. least metaphorically. Uh-huh. And so the earth resists human cultivation. So you remember that before the sin, Human beings worked, too, but work wasn't toilsome. Right. But after the sin, one of the punishments is, in the sweat of your brow now, and thorns and thistles shall you bring forth. Right, right. Well, very good. And, Paul, thanks so much uh, for your email. Hey, calls are coming in right now. You can jump in as well at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of Open Line with Father Brian Mullady. That uh, phone number again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We have a couple of lines full, a couple of lines open for you right now. We're going to get to the phones in a moment here, but first, 
want to tell you about a wonderful new book now available from EWTN Publishing, St. Thomas Aquinas Rescues Modern Psychology. And it's written by someone that we know very well, our very own Father Brian Milady. Father Brian examines the nature of a healthy Christian emotional life and ultimately provides the Catholic answer to the problematic theories of Sigmund Freud. Things like uh, how it is through struggle that we become holy. Or what about this? How God uses our sufferings to draw us closer to him. This book is a powerhouse. I certainly recommend it. St. Thomas Aquinas Rescues Modern Psychology by Father Brian Milady. Available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic. Shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Sam in Athens, Georgia, listening on Amazon Echo. Hey there, Sam. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, I am exploring the concept of free will and its purpose and its uses. Could you tell me more about it? Uh, Free will is the power that's created in us by God to desire the good that we love. It corresponds to the truth, and there's a kind of circularity in our experience of things outside of us, where first we take it in, and the correspondence of our mind, of our concept of a thing, is what determines its truth, whether it truly reflects it. But this is to experience something as it exists in us, in our way of existing. But to have a more realistic experience of it as the thing itself exists, it's absolutely necessary that we be able to go outside of ourselves to experience a kind of union with it. Uh, the term Thomas Aquinas uses is, uh, it's hard to translate in English. Its Latin term is complacentia, which doesn't really mean complacency. It means a co-pleasingness of union through love. And it's by this that we're moved to expand our personality to basically become the whole world. Because we have intelligence, we're able to look at various aspects of a thing, and nothing demands that we will it, so we don't choose to will it if we wish. This choice should end not only in the good in general, but in the good of all of our powers, and the primary good of the mind is truth, and the primary truth is God. So the will has been given to us freely because God does not want slaves. He wants sons, daughters, and heirs to first share life with him here on earth by grace Mm -hmm. and then to go out of ourselves in a kind of um, disinterested love to love God himself as he existed himself, for which, of course, we need grace. So the will is the means by which we experience union with things, and that expands our interior experience as a thing. But then the primary thing is the infinity of God himself, which when we receive this by grace, infinitely expands in a way our character. And we become lost in love of the thing that we desire. Mm. And in heaven, that love will be completed by knowledge. 
when we know, as we even as we are known, as St. Paul says. All right. Sam, what a, what a great uh, answer there from Father Brian. I, I especially love that phrase, lost in love. Sam, thanks so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for you. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Three lines open for you right now so you can uh, get in. Here is Richard now in Oregon listening on the great Modern Day Radio. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, good afternoon. Thank you. Sure. It's, uh, uh, well, it's just kind of a basic question that I've never asked anyone. I've just heard that there's some type of division between the Vatican and uh, the United States home base. I don't know if it's New York or, but is there really a division? Are there things that that, that we say, no, nah, we don't, no, nah, we, we, we don't subscribe to that. Thanks. So, you know, what is the difference? Okay. Well, there is no division uh, because the Pope is intimately present to every diocese on earth. And that's shown very clearly in the Eucharistic prayer where we always pray in union with the Pope. Uh, this shows the Catholicity of the Church because whatever diocese we're in, that diocese has the Pope as the bishop of that bishop. And his role, of course, in the Petrine ministry following St. Peter is to provide a unity of faith and governance for that particular diocese. Now, in the United States, as in many countries, we have a kind of, um, it would be a legal division from canon law about a, the local church, and that's headquartered in Washington, D.C., where the Pope's ambassador lives, who's called the Nuncio, the Nunciature. But really, that's only a legal division of human law, because every single diocese is equally present to Rome. We do not believe in national churches, like the Protestants. Okay. We also don't believe in a world council of churches, like the Protestants. The Pope is uh, has his ministry to unify all the dioceses in one. And you can see that by in the Protestant Reformation, um, when we began the Council of Trent, Archbishop Cranmer in England wanted to have a pan-Protestant council. But within the first 20 years after the Reformation, there was no central authority for Protestant churches. Mm -hmm. And so he couldn't even get the reformers to agree on where to meet. <laughs> Luther wanted to meet in Germany and Calvin in France and Knox in Scotland and mm -hmm. the Cranmer in London. And he couldn't get them even to agree on where to have a venue for meeting. But that's not true in the Catholic Church. Okay. And there you go. Uh, Richard, thank you so much uh, for your call. Appreciate hearing from you in Oregon. Called It's uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. We do have a couple of lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you call right now, we can probably get you on today's program. Here is Ruth in Central Ohio listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Hey, hello, Ruth. What's on your mind today? Hello. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm interested in John Ricard Father John Ricardo's uh, general confession for individuals. 
I heard this on the radio, but he didn't explain how that worked, and I was wondering uh, how that works for an individual to take uh, time to go to a general confession of their life. All right. Well, first of all, I don't know who Father John Ricardo is, so I have no idea what he said to you. Secondly, Dominicans don't like general confessions. (laughs) That's a Jesuit deal. (laughs) Okay. And normally, general confessions are supposed to be reserved to people who are experiencing a kind of adult acceptance or conversion to their faith. Much as remember when St. Ignatius chose to not be a soldier and give himself to God, he made a general confession about that change in vocation. They're not supposed to be done very often. And also, one of the problems is that people go over their sins and they can become quite scrupulous because many of these sins have already been forgiven. Now, it's not forbidden, obviously, but it's not exactly highly recommended more than a few times in your life. Hmm. And what you basically do is, like any confession, you examine your conscience and you try to see where there might be places where perhaps you left out a sin or perhaps you have been lukewarm and you want to become more fervent or something like that. But you need to be sure that you're not doing it under the idea that if you confessed sins before, because we always say, for these and all the sins I cannot now remember, I am hardly sorry, that there's something defective about the forgiveness. That needs to be avoided. Okay. Very good. Uh, Father, I remember back in the day, because uh, I am an adult convert, I came into the church in 1992, and uh, when I did, it was recommended to me that I do that general confession, but I haven't done one since then. Right. I mean, and that's because you haven't done a confession ever in your life. So, yeah, like if you decide to get married, let's say, or you're going to be on the religious life, a general confession might be in order and that sort of thing, but it shouldn't be practiced. And I know there are preachers who, who and I'm not saying there ain't anything bad about this. They do uh-huh. it from there. They do it from very, uh, they have good motives. But I know one fellow who tells people they should make a general confession every six months. Wow. Well, I think that's insane myself. Mm, yeah. yeah. And it all it does is make people scrupulous. And um, so... Uh, that's that's how you do it anyway. It's like any confession where you examine your conscience, only you do it for a longer period of time. Okay. Ruth, thank you so much uh, for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. Here's a uh, quick email from Kate, Father. Kate says, how does the Holy Spirit speak within us? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit speaks within us in the sacraments when we receive the sacraments. It also speaks with us when we learn our religion. So the truths of the catechism are part of the Holy Spirit speaking in you. Uh, He doesn't speak with a voice, obviously. But through the union of love, when you love God, and the Holy Spirit is divine love, he uh, moves you to act in certain ways. Now, I don't know what your experience is, but um, my own personal experience is there's a lot of things that I have done that I would not have done. <laughs> yeah. 
Me too. Uh, and I always say uh, that's the both that's negative and positive too. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the tuning of sin, but even the good things in your life, people say, "Well, thank you for you did that." Well, it's true. I I'm the one that actually accomplished it, but I always have to say, "Well, no, the Holy Spirit." Sure. Well, very good. And uh, Kate, thanks uh, so much for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Hey, we're at the halfway point here. Love to hear from you at 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN for Open Line Thursday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still time for your calls to Father Brian Milady here at EWTN's Open Line Thursday, 833-288-EWTN is that number, 833-288-3986. Matt Kabinsky on the J-O-B getting those calls screened ASAP. And so, uh, but we do have a line open for you right now at 833-288-3986. EWTN. Congratulations going out to two members of the EWTN radio family, St. John Paul the Great Radio, that's WSJG in Tiffin, Ohio, celebrating seven years with EWTN radio this week. And I love this name, the Sword of St. George, WSWZ in Wamego, Kansas, celebrating six years of solid Catholic radio with EWTN. Very glad to have you folks with us today. Uh, let's go to a, an email that we received from Bart. I am a new Catholic looking for some information on what exactly a Marian devotion entails. Can you help with that, Father? Sure, that's easy. Um, people have asked me about the Marian devotion in the Catholic Church, and uh, I told them, especially Protestant converts, mm-hmm. I'll say, look, uh, you uh, believe in Scripture, right? Uh huh, and I say literal interpretation. Yeah, and I said, well, it says in Luke, all generations will call me blessed. That's all we're doing. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and Mary, I think this may help you because some people have the idea we make her a goddess or we make her more important than Jesus or something like that. Well, she's just the first and most important member of our church. She's full of grace, and she's an example to us of faith because, of course, she's very intimately connected with her son. And some, many people identify with her and her benevolence as um, a fit, maybe I should say, an easier person to approach mm-hmm. with our prayers than we are to Christ. Some people can be somewhat. Um, I don't think I don't think I want to use a negative word like put off, but they can find Christ a little intimidating because he is, after all, the second person of the Trinity. Sure, he sure. is God, and so Mary, of course, is his mother, and the mother in ancient Israel, the queen mother especially, was very important in the court, and so we approach Mary also with our needs. Not that we don't approach Jesus too. But we think that because of her relationship with her son and because of her firm believing that she, we know she loves us and we're all her children and she wants to have us experience good things. 
So I would say that's the origin of the devotion to Mary. Okay. Appreciate that. And Bart, thank you so much uh, for your email. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Tracy in Colorado listening on Catholic Radio Network. Hey, Tracy, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, I was calling in about the symbolism on the dollar bill and the trying eye and how it says Novos Ordo Seclorum underneath the triangle. And your question would be? Is that Masonic? What's that? Well, I know it's the Latin Mass is Novos Ordo, and, oh, and no, I also no, 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 sir, no, no, no. That's a nickname given to it, okay? And it has absolutely nothing to do with the dollar bill. Um, the Latin Mass is actually the old order. <laughs> the so-called Novus Ordo is given to the Mass of Paul the Sixth that was approved in 1968 or 1969, at least 150 years after the dollar bill (laughs) came along. So the symbolism on the dollar bill is more connected to Freemasonry. But, of course, what does it mean on money? Nothing, really. And uh, the people who, of course, founded the country – Many of them were Freemasons, mm-hmm. and so they called this the New Order of the World, not the Latin Mass. It has nothing to do with the Mass whatsoever, okay? Novus Ordo Seculorum, the New Order of the World. But what that order is, well, most many people would interpret it to be democracy. After all, we were the first modern democracy, yeah. and we had no monarchy and, and that sort of thing. Supposedly, George Third when he met John Adams, who was the first ambassador to England after the war, uh, the court of St. James, mm-hmm. at the end of the interview, George III, who was actually very nice to him, the English were not nice to him, but he was nice to him. He was courteous and, uh, you know, he was a, a, a king, obviously, and he mm-hmm. wasn't going to descend to strange stuff. Right. But anyway, as Adams was leaving, he said, Mr. Adams, I pray that your country will not suffer from want of a monarchy. And supposedly Adams replied, your majesty will make our best to make sure your prayers are answered. <laughs> <laughs> so, which is very, the way diplomats used to act in those days, in class in those sure, days. Sure, sure, for sure. And uh, so, but it was a new order of the world in the sense, that, you know, there was no aristocracy, there was no monarchy, uh, though there was a kind of class structure still based mostly on property mm. more than, than heredity. Okay. Um, it was like a, for the Europeans especially, it, it was a whole new experience. They, they had never experienced anything like that. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. And there we are. Uh, Tracy, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate that. Good to hear from you there in uh, Colorado. Let's go now to Jim in Atlanta, listening on our great station there, The Quest. Hello, Jim. What's on your mind today? I would like a reference in the catechism for advice on how to vote or, more especially, <laughs> how not to. All right. How, well, how, I don't believe I, I've studied the catechism quite a lot, and I don't think there is a ref- such a reference because we're not about politics. What it does talk about is the fact that, um, and that would be in the section on common good or law, mm-hmm. um, which is in the moral section. 
that um, the state and its common good has, and the laws have to be ordinances of reason, which means that if you're choosing someone to govern your country, you have to choose someone who respects, among other things, the natural law and the truth. Because any law which is made which does not uh, reflect the truth uh, is not a real law. It's a, it's a usurpation of law. So um, we don't have to obey it as a result. Now, of course, you may suffer mm. for not obeying it, but it doesn't bind us in our conscience. Okay. Appreciate that. Jim, thanks for checking in uh, from Atlanta. We actually have a wonderful program coming up this weekend uh, on EWTN Radio because we were attending earlier this summer the Atlanta Eucharistic Congress and had the opportunity okay. to uh, interview a number of people. Uh, I know we had uh, Bishop Andrew Cousins on from uh, North Dakota. Fantastic interview and, and a number of other folks. So that'll be coming up on EWTN Radio uh, Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern. You may want to check that out. Let's go now to Alea in San Angelo, Texas, listening on the Great Guadalupe Radio. Alea, what's on your mind today? I wanted to find out um, how... We should feel, I should feel, have some cousins that went to uh, the born-again churches. And several years ago, um, born and raised Catholics, and they just left because they did not feel they were getting enough from the Catholic Church. Now one of them is returning only because, as she said, she wanted um, a church to bury her. And she was Catholic, born and raised. I just don't know how to respond to that or feel about that. Okay. Uh, so, as if I understand your question, you want to know how to respond to people who leave the church, um, who've been raised Catholic, but you also want to respond to people who return to the church for less than religious motives, yes, perhaps. Yes. Okay. Well, I was. It was interesting that I found this meme on the internet today, and it was written by a priest who got sick and tired of people asking why people didn't go to church. So in his bulletin, he put reasons I never, and then he has go to mass crossed out, and shower put in. And so he says, I was forced to shower as a child. <laughs> People who shower are hypocrites. They think they are cleaner than everybody else. There's so many different kinds of soap. I could never decide which one was right. <laughs> I used to shower, but it got boring, so I stopped. <laughs> I shower only on special occasions like Easter and Christmas. None of my friends shower. I, I, I'm still young. <laughs> When I'm older and uh, have gotten uh, my dirtier, I will start showering. I really don't have time to shower. The bathroom is never warm enough in the winter or cool enough in the summer. People who make soap are only after your money. Wow. <laughs> uh, I get along very well without showering, and it goes on. Oh, that's funny. Look, um, I have no idea why people fall away from the church except that mo many do so for trivial reasons. Some, of course, have they've had bad experiences with clergy or something like that. I have to tell you that I've had bad experiences with the clergy because I live with clergy, but I never dignify it by allowing them to affect my faith and my, my religion. 
Also, returning to be buried, well, all right, if that's what she wants to do, that's fine. But it's not really a motive for believing in Christ, exactly. Uh, we have to remember that religion should be the most important thing in our lives. After all, after death, that's what we're going to be left with, is whatever yep. we believe in about God. Mm-hmm. So, for all eternity. So, we need to get it right, and we need to do it for the right reasons. So, um, I would suggest that the way I would respond is to say, well, is that how deep your faith really is? Um, and, and people will tell you all kinds of stuff. I mean, especially as a clergyman. I remember one time I was sitting in an exit row, getting ready to sit in an exit row on a plane. Mm-hmm. And this woman tried to save both the seats. And this was Southwest. It's supposed to be open seating. And I said, I would like to sit there. Well, can't you sit somewhere else? I said, no, I want to sit there. Well, I'm saving this for two people. I said, you can't save seats in the exit row. So finally, the flight attendant got did not want to get involved in this, obviously. <laughs> but she did say, yes, you can't save seats. So as this woman was leaving, she looked at me and said, and that's why I don't go to church anymore. Wow. And I, and I said, uh, um, really, so you're disobeying the rules? And that's why you don't go to church anymore because someone caught you? Your faith in Christ couldn't have been very deep. Mm. Uh, no, and uh, that was just because I was kind of fed up with the this <laughs> using the church as a tool right, right. for your own stupidity. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, um, the way we need to react to that is to realize that even if the people were evangelized by Jesus Christ, as many were, it doesn't mean that they take it seriously. Remember, many are called, but less are chosen. Also, Christ did his doctrine in parables because people would not misunderstand it and some would hold it in contempt. And um, the Lord himself uh, had his one of his own apostles who'd been with him for three years fall away and betray him. Mm-hmm. So there's no accounting for it exactly. I mean, there's, we don't know why, except we know that there's some decision in their free will where they aren't listening. Yeah. Alea, thanks so much for your call. I remember years ago, Father, uh, a Catholic said, uh, just remember, the Catholic faith ain't for wimps. you got to stay the course. Yeah, yeah. That's what's important. It is uh, Open Line line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Still time for your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. 288-3986. We'll try to get on as many calls as we can. I have a great weekend show to tell you about. The Catholic Cafe coming up Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. Uh, this week, Deacon, Def, Deacon Jeff Drazinski talks about suffering that saves, and that would be redemptive suffering. You know, there's certainly a lot of suffering in many forms of the world today. So how we might see our suffering, as well as the suffering others, as meaningful and purposeful in participating in the plan God has laid out for the salvation of the world. It's a critically important topic to discuss. Deacon Jeff tackles it this week on The Catholic Cafe, Sunday morning, 10.30 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Here's an email now from Randall, Father. Randall says, what is the difference between a natural good work and a supernatural good work? 
Oh, okay. Well, the difference between the two isn't necessarily the work. It's the love with which it's done and the intention with which it's done. Okay. So a cup of cold water given to someone in love of Christ is sufficient to merit heaven. The supernatural character of that work would be precisely from the love of Christ. And you don't have to always be thinking about the love of Christ, but if that's your general intention, then that gives a whole other dimension to your works, which result from grace. Now, the presumption would be, and I think it's true, that if you're not in the state of grace, or you don't know about grace, obviously you can't do this from a meritorious intention. So your works would be good, but not meritorious. However, it's like the foundation on which once you do accept grace and faith, merit is based. So a person forms their conscience. Let's say they're a pagan. For example, the centurion, mm. famous centurion. Mm -hmm. By the good works, then when he hears about Christ, he so disposed himself that he can say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. And that requires a supernatural dimension then. But the difference has to do with whether one work can truly arrive at heaven um, or not. Okay. Very good. And thanks so much uh, for that email. Appreciate hearing uh, from you today. Here's a, a phone call now from Bob in Massachusetts, listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, Bob. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, uh, I have a question about uh, baptism. For one of my neighbors, uh, his father, who's elderly in his 70s, had a stroke, and um, his mental faculties are, are not uh, what they were, and he doesn't speak very well. And I, I was talking to my neighbor, who's, who's Catholic, but his, his, his father and mother, I don't think, ever were, uh, or at least his father was never Catholic, and he's not sure if his father was ever baptized. So... I was wondering, can can a, like an an adult, let's say, who's either had a stroke or had dementia or Alzheimer's, can they still get baptized? And you know, and and what happens if I mean, if there's no record and he's unsure that his father was ever baptized, can how, how does that how is that handled? Okay. Well, the answer to the second is you can't handle it if there's no record. Okay. Um, the answer to the first is uh, it's different than a child because a child can't make known their desires, you know, before they reach the age of reason mm -hmm. about whether to be baptized or not. So we baptize infants on the presumption that they don't have any acts of free will. On the other hand, a person who's an adult, more or less they have to have some sign that they, A, they want to be baptized and um, be there free from any impediments. Mm -hmm. So if they make a sign they want to be baptized or they would like to in danger of death or something, anybody can do it. I mean, it's the John Wayne syndrome. John Wayne has described himself as a cardiac Catholic. <laughs> and he said Catholicism, which he believed in, uh, was too hard to live. So he preferred to wait till his death 
<laughs> mm, wow. Well, you know, he, he was still conscious, fortunately, when he was baptized. But if he hadn't been, since he manifested a desire for it, it would be perfectly possible to, you know, get that, baptize him and have him be a baptized person. Also, the presumption is that you're not going to get too many more sacraments if you're old and dying, mm-hmm. uh, like marriage, for instance, or something like that. A confession, well, maybe, or anointing, well, maybe. But um, as far as baptism is concerned, when you're an adult, you have to have made some sort of sign that you would be open to this should it ever happen. Okay. Bob, thanks so much uh, for your call. Let's go now to uh, Emily, a first-time caller from North Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hi, Emily. What's on your mind today? Hi. Uh, I was just wondering if, for the penance on Friday, if you happen to eat meat, but you did a you do rosary every single day, would that rosary on Friday count as your penance for that day? Oh, well, look, you don't have to abstain from meat except during Lent, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So you don't need to have something count for it exactly, although the church recommends that you do some sort of penance outside of Lent. If you're talking about Lent, if you knew and you just decided not to abstain from meat, I don't think the rosary would count for that, quote unquote. Mm. But on the other hand, if you forgot, sincerely forgot, then uh, of course, uh, it's, it's, people get so caught up in these things about the meat thing, especially now when it's, it's basically a liturgical law and it's meant to just emphasize the fact that we do penance for Christ's passion. So um, it's not quite of the same weight as it was before the council when we basically abstain from meat mm-hmm. every Friday as a sign of being a Catholic. But um, the obligation is still there, but your sin would be more if you committed a sin contempt for the law of the church to ask you to do that. So I would say that outside of Lent, there's no penance necessary to make up for it. You, you should uh, do some sort of penance. And the rosary would certainly be, I guess, if you looked at it as a penance. <laughs> <laughs> In the sense of more prayer, yes, that would be fine. Uh, but it isn't necessary as far as justice or confession is concerned. Okay. After, uh, during Lent, uh, yes, you could, but you, you really should confess not eating meat still during Lent. Okay. Emily, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. Jerome has a question here. Uh, what does the church teach as far as free will and purgatory? Do we have control over how long it takes us to complete our time in purgatory? Uh, okay, I'll answer your question this way. We don't have control over the actual punishment, Mm -hmm. but the the character of the punishment of purgatory is that you have things left over in your character from earth that you need to resolve before you see Christ. Because, and and it's basically you that needs to resolve it. So God, Christ is satisfied more or less when the soul is satisfied. Remember, you can't, Fool yourself after you die. Yeah. Uh, when the soul is uh, satisfied, 
that it's prepared now to meet God without all these encumberments from the evil that it may have done on earth, either to yourself or to others, or both. Um, Of course, the blessed in heaven and the people on earth can help you resolve that. But there is a kind of objective thing that has to be resolved, which you don't determine except in the fact that you want to be free and enjoy Christ completely. And so when you've done what's what's needed, or you can't do anything, obviously, Hmm. when you suffered the passive purgation, which is needed from that weaknesses that you had, then it's you go to immediately you go to heaven. Okay, and then uh, thank you for your question, Jerome. Here's one last question for you, Father. This is from Walter. What is the difference between actual and sanctifying grace? Oh, that's easy. Um, uh, actual grace has two effects. It's uh, freely given. And um, it's without personal merit. Sanctifying grace is freely given without personal merit, and it makes a person holy. Actual grace is not an act. It's an aid for you to live the life of holiness that sanctifying grace gives you. So it's basically described as enlightening the mind and strengthening the will to carry out and live in the state of the presence of the Holy Trinity, which you receive in sanctifying grace, but it is not sanctifying in itself. No. All right. Yeah. All right, and we thank you so much for that. Uh, Father, could you leave us with your blessing? We're all out of time. May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. And you'll be back at uh, home base next week, right? Right, Oregon, Portland. All right. Well, we'll be praying for your safe travels. Father, thank you so much. My pleasure. Don't forget, we do this program uh, with Father Brian Milady every Thursday, so do check us out next week at this same time. And uh, tomorrow at this same time, it's going to be our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, for Open Line Friday. On behalf of uh, Michael McCall, our producer, and the great team here, I'm Tom Price. Uh, Jack will be back with us very soon. Have a great one and a wonderful day here on EWTN. God bless.